I want to invite you to do something that might seem a little bit strange right now, but I want to ask you to stand up. Everybody stand up. That way we can get some aerobic activity going. You've been sitting there for a while, so we'll get the blood pumping. Here's the reason why I'm asking you to stand is every now and then I, uh, I have these epiphanies, if you want to call it that, and, and I want to try and get us engaged with what's about to happen. And so I'm asking you to stand up because I, we're doing something, uh, we're taking a step back in time. And just so you can understand this, I want you to sit down if you have ever said the following. If I had known then what I know now, if you've ever said that, have a seat. (laughs) Joe, congratulations. This is exactly what I was hoping to have happen. One of the most... Oh, Heidi, you were standing up too? Well, we'll talk later about that, okay? So, uh, but anyway, so... uh, so the re- you guys said that sort of ruins the illustration. Um, I didn't expect that to happen so quickly. Uh, but before I go any further, and we'll come back to this, I want to say thank you to Jamal and for Margie for filling in in such a great way uh, as they uh, while I was away. And uh, I'm so thankful again for the people that uh, that fill in here. And we, the Lord has blessed this church with some wonderful people. But you all sat down a little too early, so we're going to be done a lot earlier uh, than I anticipated. But in life, we have these experiences where we look back and we say, wow, I wish I would have done something differently. And as we made our way through the Ten Commandments series, Flipside, every single Sunday I walked away and I realized I should have done something different. I could have said something different. And just as a matter of letting you know what goes through my mind, and not just my mind, but any pastor when they, when they preach, each pastor prepares three messages every single week. The one that they prepare, then the one that they actually present, and the one that they preach to themselves after they're all done walking home. What we're experiencing today is a message that, that I came up with after one of, the, one, of the, one of the commandments, and it was the commandment on adultery. As I finished that message that morning, I sat there and I realized, well, if you're a single person, you're wondering if adultery even has anything to do with you. And I began to wrestle with this because so often we get so locked in, I get so locked in on presenting something that I forget to see the bigger picture. And the reality is this, is that when it comes to adultery, all of us struggle with it, whether we're single or married. We all struggle with it because it's a big issue that has been ongoing since pretty much almost the beginning of time, at least we could say since Genesis chapter 3. And what's interesting to me as I work through these things is, is the Bible is very clear on a number of things between our relationship with God and His relationship with us. And throughout the Bible, God refers to our relationship with Him by using marriage as an example. Throughout the Old Testament, God refers to Israel as His bride many times. 
As a matter of fact, there are Old Testament prophets whose entire life is based on a marriage that, that God wants to use to illustrate the relationship between humanity and himself and his incredibly deep love for us. As Christ followers, we are referred to as the bride of Christ. And when all is said and done, when everything is wrapped up, we will participate in a wedding feast unlike any wedding reception we have ever experienced before. God has this idea, not just an idea, but God uses the, illustri- uses the, the, uh, the beauty of marriage to, under- to help us understand who he is and who we are. And, and yes, at times marriages get a little wonky, but yet God wants to use that to show us how much he cares for us and how delicate and beautiful this relationship is that we have with him. What we're going to talk about today is a topic that's not very easy to discuss, but it's all throughout Scripture, and it's all throughout our lives. It's a topic called spiritual adultery. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah being the longest book in the Bible, and it is, it is long for a reason because, because God has a lot to say through the prophet. Jeremiah is one of the most difficult, difficult prophecies to, to walk through, and it's difficult because you see this never-ending suffering that Jeremiah experiences as he shares with God's people the fact that they're going a way that they ought not go. As a matter of fact, 45 chapters out of the 52 chapters deal with the issue that we're going to be talking about today. God has something to say to us this morning. And may we take a look at this. So we'll read the first couple verses of of Jeremiah chapter 2, and then we'll move forward from there. The word of Yahweh came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem... This is what Yahweh says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. We go over to verse 7. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. And we'll wrap up with this verse, verse 13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Father, we pray now as we come to this time of looking at your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes that we may see, open our ears that we may hear, Open our minds that we may understand and open our hearts that we would be transformed in such a way that we realize that you are the one and only God. You are the one and only that can rescue us, that can restore us, that can heal us. And Father, have mercy on us for the countless times that we've turned to broken cisterns thinking that they will satisfy Holy Spirit, do your work, and Lord Jesus Christ, may you be lifted up throughout this experience. In Jesus' name, in your name we pray. Amen. So the Lord has called Jeremiah to confront the, God's people, 
And in the process of calling them and confronting them about their behavior, God does something very interesting here. Instead of immediately confronting them and going down that path, what God does, and I think, it's, it, I think there's a lot to be learned from this, is that God says, I want to take you back when you thought and believed that I am the only one. When you looked around and you said, you compared me to all these other different gods, and you said, He is the only one. Notice what God says here in verse 2. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth. God does not shy away from their incredible devotion that they once had towards him. The all-knowing, all-powerful creator and sustainer of all life acknowledges our devotion to him. Yes, there are over 7 billion people on this planet and we can think that he can do whatever he wants and yes, he can. But yet God acknowledges it, acknowledges us and acknowledges the devotion that we have to him. And for many in this room, I've heard your stories about how you became devoted to Jesus Christ and how, how much God came into your life and how, how he entered in. It may very well have been through some serious physical ailment that you were struggling with and, and all of a sudden God rescues you. It may be this incredible amount of peace that you experience through a dysfunctional family. And in the midst of that dysfunction, you realize that Jesus Christ truly cares for you and loves you enormously. It may be the beautiful, sweet reality of an unconditional love that breaks through all your shame and all your guilt and sets you free. It may be any of these particular things that that set you free. And all of a sudden, when Jesus Christ became real in your life, you said, you are the only one. I am completely devoted to you. This past week on Tuesday morning, as I was making my way back from from Haiti, I stopped in, uh, I had a layover in Phoenix, and and I went out to breakfast with my daughter, Stephanie. I don't know if you know this or not. Uh, I don't know if I've mentioned it or not, but she's getting married. I can't wait for the event to be over. Um, I hope Don didn't hear me just say that, but I'm sure Heidi will. You better not tell Ma. Okay, so, but, but I got together with her. We went out to breakfast. And while we're at breakfast, I said, how are things going between you and Andy? And it was over. For the next 30 minutes... I heard about how much she loved this man. Heard about all these different things that they're doing together. Heard about all the different plans that they have, about what they're going to do on their honeymoon, where they're going, what they're going to do, how much fun they're going to have. And and I heard about all these other different details about what she loved about this man. And all the different details about what he loved about her. Not once did I hear, hey, thanks for picking up the tab. But anyway, that's another story. But she loves Andy. She loves him deeply. And when Andy and she get together and I watch the two of them interact, they so love one another. It impacted me. It impacted me deeply. Especially knowing what I was going to be preaching on this Sunday. Because I sat there and I thought, how does this work? 
How is it that Andy and Stephanie have such an incredibly deep love for one another, and yet there's a good chance that, that somewhere down the line that, that, that enthusiasm that they have for one another may very well wane? But yet right now I rejoice in that devotion that they have. I ask you this question. How devoted are you today compared to the first day? that you said yes to Jesus Christ. What's that devotion look like for you? Is there still that same zest? Is there still that same enthusiasm? Is there still that same, wow, isn't God great? And yes, I know this to be true, that life comes at us and it has an awful lot of rough things that we go through. Yet in the midst of that, where's your devotion? Where's your devotion? It's interesting to me that as God gets ready to confront these people, He confronts them on, He he addresses it by starting out by saying, You were devoted to me. And perhaps they were devoted to Him because they compared all these other Egyptian gods that they had seen as they dealt with all the junk that they that they were experiencing when they were in Egypt, and all of a sudden they realized. The reason why I'm devoted to him is because the Lord is faithful to his covenant to humanity. And perhaps they saw how these Egyptian gods were so so different. They were so moody. They were so, yes, they cared, and then no, they didn't. And, And yet they come to understand that Yahweh, the one true God, cares about them, that he's faithful to their covenant, and perhaps it's at the middle, uh, in the middle of seeing that that they said, that's why I'm devoted to this one. I'm devoted to him because he is devoted to me. I invite you to flip a few pages to the left, go back to Genesis chapter 15, and we'll see what I'm talking about here. And I don't know how you can do this. I don't know if you can highlight the entire chapter of Genesis 15, but hear me clearly on this. Genesis chapter 15 is one of the most significant chapters in the entire Bible. Yes, I did say that. The entire Bible. This is one of the most powerfully significant chapters in all of God's Word. And so there's this encounter that God has with Abram. And Abram has all these different questions. He doesn't know if he can actually bank on God very well. But what he finds out and what we find out is this, is that God knows humanity very well. We pick it up in verse 8 where Abram asks this question. But Abram said, Sovereign Yahweh, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So Yahweh said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abram brought all these to him. He cut them in two and arranged them in halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Let me explain what's going on here for those of you that don't know what's going on. Back in the Old Testament, when you made a covenant with someone, you animals were very important. They were like currency. And so what would happen is when you would make a covenant with someone, you would take an animal, you would cut it in half, you would put one half of it on one side, one half of it on the other, and then you would walk through this, through these, these carcasses, for lack of a better word. You would walk through them, and what you're acknowledging as you walk through those, those divided carcasses is this. 
is if I break this covenant, you are allowed to do to me what we have done to these animals. You did not enter into a covenant lightly because you knew there was a consequence to breaking the covenant. So God says to Abraham, how do we know that this, how do we know, how do you know that I'm going to, I'm going to be faithful to my covenant? We're going to make a deal right now. We're going to make a covenant. And so they divide this. And then verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then Yahweh said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And so Abram falls asleep. The covenant ceremony is about to happen, and Abram is completely asleep. Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. That firepot, that amazing fire, is God himself. God walks through these, through these carcasses on his own. Abram is not there. God understands humanity so well. He understands that we're fickle. He understands that there are times that we're really grooving with him and devoted to him and moving forward with him. We're in lockstep with him. But he also understands this, that oftentimes we get caught up in all these different things. So God walks through this covenant ceremony by himself. God establishes a covenant on his own. Abram, one of the most devoted followers of God, is, is fast asleep. God doesn't wake him up. God just walks through. Because God knows that he is the only one that can fulfill a covenant all the time. That's the type of God we have. A God that knows when we're strong. A God that knows when we're weak. And he's willing to go through and he's willing to continue to care for us. He's willing to continue to look out for us because he knows us very well. So we're back to Jeremiah. And so we see that God acknowledges their great devotion. But then something happens. Look at verse 7. It says, I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The people had moved from believing that he is the only one to then asking this question, is he the only one? And when we begin to ask that question, we begin to open our lives up to some, some activities, to, to some decisions that are not going to be very helpful. And so we come to verse 13 where we will be spending the bulk of our time now. Look at what happens here. My people have committed two sins. 
Just a few verses prior to this, we hear about how devoted they are, how they're going to go do this, how they're going to go do that, how God is so pleased with them. And now God says, my people have committed two sins. During the time of Jeremiah's prophecy, the the God's people are being overwhelmed by this pagan culture in which they find themselves. On every street corner, a, a temple appeared, and outside that temple were temple prostitutes. And so what was happening was the people, instead of staying true to the one true God, said, you know what? This looks interesting. Let's go ahead and participate with them. But notice what God says here. My people have committed two sins. He doesn't say, you know what, you're living in this land that's pretty messed up. It's okay to do whatever you want. No, he doesn't make reference to that at all. He says, my people have committed two sins. Our commitment is our responsibility. It's real tempting when we get called out on something to sit there and point fingers and blame other people and blame our situation and blame our circumstances and say, this is why I did what I did. That may very well be true, but until we acknowledge the fact that what we did is our fault, not someone else's fault, but it's our fault, until we acknowledge that, we're playing games with God. My people have committed two sins. He gives no room for excuses. No room whatsoever. And so as they're tempted to respond and say, look, it's not my fault. I'm, you know, I did this because of this or whatever. He's simply saying, you've committed two sins. What's your attitude right now towards the times when you have said to God, I'm going to go a different route? In essence, and I hate to say it this way, in essence, committing spiritual adultery by looking somewhere else to get taken care of. All of us struggle with this. And then notice what he says here. He says, my people have committed two sins, and then he says this, they have forsaken me. In all other places in Scripture where there's a prophecy and God is confronting, God, when God is confronting the people's sin, He will say it in, in perhaps this way. He will say it this way that says, They have forsaken the Lord God Almighty. He'll keep it out here. But notice what's going on here. He says, They have forsaken me. He makes it personal. Just as God knows our devotion and He rejoices in that devotion, God loves us so much that He also knows our sinful desires. He knows that we struggle. Let that sink in for a few moments. There are over 7 billion people on this planet, and yes, there are a whole lot of heinous things going on in this world. A whole lot of things that God could be overwhelmed with, not overwhelmed, but He should be concerned about, and He is. But here's what's amazing about God. God knows your sinfulness. He knows my sinfulness. He doesn't sit there and say, oh, I didn't have anything, I had no idea that you were doing that. He knows us. He's not some far-off, distant God that says, I'll get around to it eventually with you. He knows when you and I have said, I have forsaken you. Our God has emotion. 
we're told in Scripture that there are times that we can grieve Him. And God's people were grieving Him. They were grieving Him not because of anything that He had done, because He had provided everything for Him, but they were grieving Him because they were turning away to other people and to other gods. What's interesting to me is this, is as we continue on, is that notice how he refers to himself. He calls himself the spring of living water. Water in the ancient Middle East was an incredibly precious resource, and frankly, water is a precious resource even today. For people to find water, it took up an awful lot of their daily lives. And so he's saying, I am the spring of living water. I'm the one that will always take care of you. I'm the one that's always there for you. And you would think that in the exchange that we make, when we say that, hey, we're going to go a different route, you would think that we would have made a better decision. Think about this for a moment. We're always looking for a better deal. Cars today are far better than they were 15 years ago. They're safer all the technology that comes with them, it's absolutely amazing. They can even drive themselves. They can even parallel park by themselves, which I think is really cool. Of course, I think parallel parking's a joke, but anyway, that's a whole other issue. Phones today have more technology in them than what was required to put a person on the moon. We have all these incredible things and we're always looking for the biggest and the best and the newest because it's going to be better than what it once was. So you would think that we would continue that type of thinking when it comes to God, yet look what happens. He's the spring of living water. He's the one that provides fresh water. And what do we do? Look what we do. We have dug their, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We have the living water right there, and we say, yeah, I'm going to go a different route. I'd rather go with this water that's stagnant. I'd rather go with this water that has gook in it. I'd rather drink from that. I'd rather drink from that because, you know what? I enjoy getting sick. Think about it. It makes no sense to me whatsoever, and I do this just like all of us do this, that God is saying, I'm giving you the best, and yet we decide we want rancid water instead. When we turn away from God, when we turn away from the spring of living water, that's what we're getting. And perhaps this might help us understand something a little bit better. It's a hard truth that hits us hard. Replacing the irreplaceable always leads to disappointment. When we try to replace the irreplaceable one, God Almighty Himself, When we try to replace him with something or someone else, it always leads to disappointment. Again, I've shared this with you plenty of times. I've never had someone come into my office that's in the middle of doing some some incredibly painful things and difficult things and sinful things. I've never had anybody come into my office and said, you know what, I look forward to sinning more. Because it's going so well for me right now. I've never once had that conversation with anyone. When I look at my own life and I see the destructive things that I do to myself, I don't sit there saying, man, I want more pain. 
I want more isolation. I want more disappointment. Yet, as we read God's Word, we see this to be true, that we are going down a path of destruction. God's people were turning away from God. And notice what he says here at the end. He says, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. How much time are you investing in things that do not satisfy? How much money has been going out of your pocket in search of the next big thing that you believe will take care of you? How much energy are you putting forward thinking that a broken cistern will take care of you? Let me address just a few of the broken cisterns that we have in our world today. The first is this, the whole issue of sex. It sort of goes without saying that we would spend some time talking about that on an issue about adultery. But listen to this. The stats on porn usage, on internet porn usage, are staggering. 12% of all websites are pornographic in nature. 42% of all internet users use view porn. Every month there are 72 million visitors to porn sites. One out of every three of those visitors is a woman. And the revenue from the porn industry exceeds the combined revenue of Microsoft, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, and Netflix combined. I don't need to say much more than we have an issue. A big issue. Another broken cistern is the whole issue of materialism. We live in the richest country that humanity has ever seen, yet we are a people that want more and more, believing that that one item is going to take care of us far better than anything else could ever take care of us. Consumer debt right now is over $2 trillion in the United States. $2 trillion. That's a two with a bunch of zeros after it. In this quest that we have to get more and more and more and more, thinking that by getting more and more and more that we will be satisfied, that we will have living water. Then there's another one that we struggle with greatly. It doesn't get talked about very much, but I think it's pretty legit. The broken cistern of power. This desire that we have to acquire more power, this desire that we have to be in control of a situation, to manipulate a situation, whether it's at work or in our families, that we can maintain power and that we can have what needs, what we believe needs to be done for us, not anyone else. That power is evident in the the fact that we don't forgive one another. We hold on to grudges and we say, I'm not going to let go of that because we're afraid of when we let go of that, that all of a sudden we're going to appear powerless and we're always looking for the upper hand. The fact that we go around and we gossip about other people, believing that through gossip that it it gives us more and more power because we can treat people poorly and we can talk behind their backs thinking that they'll never find out. This ongoing quest for more power is a problem because 
we think that we're going to get stronger and what ends up happening is we become weaker. What broken cistern are you building right now? What broken cistern are we building that we look to in our lives thinking that that's going to take care of us when in reality it's nothing but rancid water? John chapter 4 starting at verse 10. Jesus Christ is talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman, a woman who has been through the ringer, a woman who has made some decisions that are not good, A woman who's been drinking from broken cisterns for a long while. A woman who is longing for something to be different. Jesus Christ comes up to her. We look at verse 7. I'm sorry. We look at verse 7. And when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then Jesus looks at her and says this, If you knew the gift of God. Right now this woman is in the presence of the one and only. And she doesn't realize it. And remember what I said earlier about Genesis chapter 15. God Almighty is the only one that walked through that. It's an incredible gift that we have a God who walked through those split carcasses and made a covenant with us. It's an incredible gift that He didn't wait for Abram to wake up. It's an incredible gift that He walked through knowing that humanity has failures. Humanity has struggles. Humanity is going to look for all these different answers in all these different locations. It's an incredible gift that He walked through it. If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? I would love for Jesus to look at her and say, well, yes, I am. I'm far greater than Jacob. I'm far greater than this person. I'm far greater than the prophet Jeremiah. I'm far greater than all these other people that have come before me. I'm far greater because I am the living water that you need. I am the one that knows the broken cisterns that you're drinking from. I'm the one who knows why you're here right now at this cistern drawing water. I am the living water. He's faithful to His covenant. He's faithful to taking care of people. He's faithful to looking out for them. 
And notice what he says in verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. All your broken cisterns that all of us try to think that are going to take care of us, all of us come back more thirsty the next time. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's in essence looking at this lady saying, do you want to continue to go through the life that you're going through right now? Or do you want to move from restlessness to resting in me, the one who can give you living water? So I ask you this morning, will you stop? looking to broken cisterns to take care of you? Will I stop looking for all these different things that I think are going to take care of me, but they always leave me more miserable, more isolated, more lonely? Will this community of faith stop and say, we're going to Jesus all the time? The one who gives us living water. The one who gives us all that we need. The one who takes care of us. Even when we walk away, He's still there saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest because I am the spring of living water. I'll never let you down. My hope for all of us this morning as we wrestle with this issue of spiritual adultery that we would realize that there's no greater one than Jesus Christ to take care of us. This one who meets us where we are and says, I will give you living water. Father, I pray as we work through these words, we pray that we would understand more fully how good you are We confess to You that we get caught up in so many different things that we lose our way so easily. And we would ask that You would have mercy on us for the times that we have walked away. And we would ask that Your Holy Spirit would remind us that You give the living water we so desperately need. Father, direct our lives in such a way that we are refreshed by You day by day. It's in Your holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.